We're glad to have you back. You're listening to the Coger Center for the Arts podcast. You're listening to the Coger Center Arts Roundup podcast. Our special guest today is Jane Prisby, the executive director of McKissick Museum, located right here on the University of South Carolina campus in the heart of the horseshoe. Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about the museum, just a general overview? Um, w what's the museum's mission and uh, how long have you been with the museum? Um, I've been with the museum since 2011 this time, but I had been at the museum uh, when I was still a graduate student at NYU. So that's that's a whole other story. But I think, I think for people who aren't aware of the history of the McKissick Museum, um, they might be interested to know that it was founded in 1976, the year of the bicentennial. And that was the year that the new Thomas Cooper Library was completed. So the McKissick Library um, was no longer needed as a facility for the library because all the books and the staff moved over to the new Thomas Cooper Library. And so there was this lovely, you know, building, uh, progressive era uh, WPA project building on the historic horseshoe um, that was going to be vacated. And um, a number of people on campus lobbied pretty hard um, and suggested that maybe it was time to take the collections that were dispersed across the campus um, and and bring them together under one building uh, and rename it the McKissick Museum. So that is what happened. So um, when the museum was first organized, uh, the first collection that came uh, was actually from the geology department. They had a very large teaching collection that they no longer were using so actively there as a teaching collection, but because it included historic specimens that had been collected by Thomas Cooper himself, when he was on faculty and later president of the University of South Carolina, um, that this was an important collection that needed to be stewarded. So that collection came to the McKissick Museum first, and the first curator hired at the museum was a curator of, uh, of natural history because of that. Um, uh, the other major collection that was on the university campus that came to the McKissick Museum had been um, in the university treasure room. So um, if you can imagine, uh, since the university had been founded in 1801, when uh, residents of South Carolina um, had something that they felt should be preserved for future generations, they would take a quick look around the state and, and, and ask themselves, well, what institution seems to have some staying power? And uh, often the University of South Carolina or South Carolina College initially um, was perceived to be a place that was going to be around for a while. So, um, so residents would donate objects they felt needed to be preserved to the university. And those objects would be displayed in various places um, uh, as the university treasures. And perhaps the most, um, well known of those was the Baruch silver collection. So Bernard Baruch, who was born in South Carolina and uh, moved to New York City and made a great career as a very successful financier. Um, and he and his wife uh, took very uh, frequent trips to London and collected 18th century British sterling silver. 
And when they passed along, their daughter, Belle Baruch, uh, inherited this. And then when she uh, was making out her will, um, you know, she left uh, the uh, silver. She did not marry or have children. So um, the silver was something that she needed to find a home for. And the executor of her estate, again, looked around and said, well, gee whiz, where should we put this incredible 19th, 18th century British sterling silver collection? And the university became the repository of that collection. So, um, so again, those were the first two collections, I would say, that, that came to the McKissick Museum. But the early leadership um, at the museum in terms of uh, the direction, you know, creating a focus and direction for the, the museum were coming out of the uh, public history program. So they were kind of young Turks, you know, who were championing uh, forms of culture and, um, and objects that had fallen through disciplinary cracks in many cases, because things like uh, the sweet grass baskets from the Low Country, made by mostly African Americans. Um, things like quilts made by women um, that historically had not been considered art or a part of art history, but um, anthropologists, you know, had not really taken up the study of that kind of material culture in a very serious way. I think it was just a little too close to home, wasn't perhaps exotic enough. Um, so the early leadership at the McKissick Museum uh, decided they would uh, really carry the baton on behalf of uh, forms of southeastern material culture that had been perhaps overlooked. And so um, early on, uh, the leadership made a very intentful effort to build a collection that would be strong in southeastern material culture. So, of course, the mission of the museum um, is to support the educational mission of the University of South Carolina, first and foremost. But our tagline is that the McKissick Museum tells the story of Southern life, community, culture, and the environment. And that kind of captures the more regional nature of our intently built collections um, and the focus on uh, Southern folk life and material culture. So um, again, uh, that continues to this day to be a primary focus of the McKissick Museum. On the second floor, if you come to the museum, there is a dedicated gallery called our Diverse Voices Gallery. Um, and that was dedicated to George, in memory of George Terry, who was part of that early leadership at the McKissick Museum. And it was dedicated to year-long exhibitions of uh, South, Southeastern folk life and, and material culture. So, um, so again, that's pretty much um, in a nutshell, again, the history of the museum. We have uh, many collections, eclectic collections, including, you know, the natural science collection is huge and very important. Um, we have the Baruch Silver collection. We have a very uh, substantial art glass and art pottery collection. Um, but I think what we're most known for, um, and certainly, you know, when people want to borrow things from us, uh, the, uh, the Edgefield pottery, um, 19th century Edgefield pottery, uh, one of the former registrars at the McKissick Museum named Cinda Baldwin. She did the primary research and created the seminal text um, called The Great and Noble Jar um, about South Carolina uh, alkaline glaze pottery that um, that industry was focused in and around Edgefield County. Um, Edgefield District in the 19th century it was called. So, um, so 
we have many uh, requests uh, to borrow uh, objects from that collection, particularly um, those objects that were made by David Drake, who was an enslaved potter from Edgefield, who sometimes actually um, incised his name, a date, and even on occasion rhymed couplets into the very large kind of monumentally sized storage vessels he would turn. So um, those particular objects, because they speak to such an incredible kind of, um, well, craftsmanship, but, but to, um, to the tenacity of enslaved African-Americans insofar as uh, actually learning how to read and write in historical moments when that was not um, even legal. Uh, and then uh, again, managing to create a record um, of their experience in um, in, a, in a form that you wouldn't typically, you know, um, uh, look look to or look for in terms of the African American experience um, from the 19th century. So, so our pottery collection gets uh, tagged quite a bit. We mo most recently had somebody wanting to borrow uh, sweetgrass baskets by Mary Jackson. Um, we have a very strong sweetgrass basket collection thanks to Dale Rosengarten, who was a guest curator very early in um, the McKissick's life in the 80s. She curated uh, a seminal exhibition and created a, a catalog that continues to be um, one of USC Press's best-selling um, catalogs because it really is the definitive work on the history of the sweetgrass basket tradition in the low country of South Carolina. So Mary Jackson was someone whose work we documented, we collected, and she over time has crossed into the art market um, because of just the, 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 well, the aesthetic beauty uh, and the meticulous craftsmanship of her pieces. So we recently had, um, had a request to borrow uh, work by Mary Jackson. I think that pretty much speaks to, you know, again, the history of the museum um, and, and, and the way in which the, um, the intentions of the early leadership continued to be in some ways shaping um, McKissick's um, exhibition research and public outreach programs. So you must have a, a wealth of exhibit material and storage. What sort of percentage of what you have gets to be seen by the public? And how often do even say the permanent exhibits change the actual items in them? Well, um, good question. Uh, I, I can't even begin to estimate, really, um, how many objects are on exhibition from the collection compared with how many are in storage. The vast majority are in storage. But, um, but I'll have to tell you, uh, now that we are in the world of COVID, um, when borrowing objects from private or even public lenders becomes a little more problematic simply because you know the transfer of objects going to people's homes to pick them up or even other institutions where um, you know social distancing protocols are already in place. Um, I think more and more at least um, well right now uh, you know we are thinking as a staff that uh, really showcasing objects from our collection primarily is the way to go during this time because we don't have to go to somebody else's house to pick them up. Um, and, uh, and so I think, um, I'm just trying to think out loud in terms of our, our, uh, permanent galleries. Um, we, 
I, I guess the gallery that seems the most permanent, although it is ever changing and ever evolving, thanks to a very substantial um, IMLS grant that the museum received um, to document its uh, historic Southern naturalists collections. So, um, so all the galleries are changing all the time, whether you know it or not, to some extent. Um, the rotation schedule historically has been per semester, so we would change out um, the second floor galleries three times a year, uh, fall, winter, and then summer. Um, the natural science gallery, again, because of the special specialized casework that was built to house gems and minerals um, uh, to make them safe for exhibition, um, that gallery doesn't look like it changes out all that much from the outside, but because of the historic Southern Naturalist Project, we now have, um, again, touch screens that people won't be touching soon, but we had installed touch screens in order to provide access to the archival as well as um, the archival information on campus, um, because it was a project that was a collaboration with South Carolina Library, as well as Thomas Cooper Library, as well as with the Charleston Museum, because they had um, objects um, and archival materials that were relevant to these select early Southern naturalists that um, have a strong presence in our collection. And we felt that this digitization project would allow um, our audiences, if they so choose or chose, to access not only um, the objects, you know, the extensive objects, physical objects in the collection via um, uh, a digital media, but access the archival materials. So letters, books, um, just, you know, images, pictures of these people, um, any other documentary kinds of support materials that were in other collections around the university or in the um, Charleston Museum's collection could be brought to bear and sort of integrated in at, at one digital place. So, um, so more and more, again, that gallery has shifted and changed in response to the um, research and the digitization project that has gone on with regards to our um, historic uh, naturalist, natural science collections. And is that something that people can now access from home? Or do you need yeah. to? Tell us how no, they do that. Um, Tell us more about that. They should definitely, uh, no, they can, they can access. Um, uh, we have, again, thanks to this project, we are able to, um, the staff has been able to upload many, many, many of these objects to um, our online uh, collections um, database. So you can go on, I think there's a link from our website to the uh, page that is our digital collections. Um, and we started, I think, with only maybe 200 objects on that collection, but now I think we're well over a thousand objects um, that you can easily access through um, through digital media. So uh, you can, um, and in fact, I think we recently uploaded shells and I thought, wow, if you were homeschooling, you could um, have your kids look for certain kinds of shells, pretend they're on the beach and go to our, our website and, and find certain shells and learn more about the animals that inhabited those shells and, you know, where those shells, you know, um, where they range from in terms of where they can be found in addition to perhaps not only South Carolina beaches, but beaches all over the world. So, um, so yes, I encourage uh, people by, uh, you know, to, to please, yeah, if they're interested in sort of, you know, curating their own exhibit, they can certainly go onto our online um, collections database and do that for themselves. So 
can you talk briefly about uh, the three galleries that change out, um, you know, on a regular basis? Um, when when the museum does reopen uh, to the public, what can people look forward to seeing when they can uh, have a chance to come back inside the museum? Okay, so um, so we we have not yet. Um, you know, gotten guidance. Uh, I think um, the university administration is really focused on how to safely bring back faculty, staff, and students at the moment. Um, but we expect at some point we will get guidance on when uh, and how we will be opening the museum's galleries to the general public again. Um, and so what we have planned um, uh, is, well, first of all, I should just say that, you know, when we were, when we were shuttered because of COVID, um, we worked really, really hard to move an exhibit that um, we had uh, guest curated by a faculty member named Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Gunter um, about the history of women at USC because we felt that um, this year we were all commemorating or many people were commemorating the uh, 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, um, giving uh, women the right to vote. And so uh, we developed a year-long two-part exhibit called A Woman's Right and um, the first half of the exhibition focused on uh, women at USC or at the, at the South Carolina College, as it was then called. Um, you know, what role, uh, how did women, what, what could women do or what, 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 what and how did they um, make the case for um, their rights on the university campus? So, um, so the exhibit, part one of the exhibit looked at, you know, again, women, women, fighting for rights at the university from the founding through World War II. And then part two of the exhibition was gonna pick up after World War II and bring us to the present. So, um, so I'm happy to say that you can go on our website now and there is a link to a exhibit catalog that um, our new curator of exhibitions, uh, Giordano Angeletti, um, worked really hard with uh, Lana Burgess to, um, to translate what had been an in-person experience of that exhibit into an exhibit catalog experience. So, um, so anybody who is interested in uh, A Woman's Right at the University of South Carolina, part one, can just pull up that catalog and you'll get to see the images of the objects in the exhibition and read the interpretive text and object labels. So, um, so that's something that just went live this week. So I'm really proud of that product. And, um, and, and we'll be working in that manner um, with the other exhibitions as well, because we understand that many people who attend museums may uh, not feel uh, comfortable um, coming back to museums in person until we have a vaccine and everyone's gotten it. So, um, so we're gonna, we have a, a, an approach to exhibitions um, now that is two-pronged. So we are working to uh, develop an in-person experience for uh, a woman's right part two, um, which I think, you know, I think a lot of people will be surprised by how much uh, activism was going on at the University of South Carolina during the 70s and the, the women's movement in particular in the ERA. Um, and then the other exhibitions we have planned for the fall in person and online. Um, one we hope will uh, be a little, bring a little levity to COVID. Um, it's uh, uh, an exhibit that draws from our very strong uh, political campaign collection that um, Bud Ferrillo so generously donated to the McKissick Museum. And uh, just as a teaser, I'll tell you that um, 
the the one object that I know is on the list that really tickled my fancy was a uh, toilet paper, Jimmy Carter toilet paper that was produced um, during his political campaign. So I thought, you know, given that toilet paper has been such a hot topic during COVID, that it would be really fun uh, to see um, things like that that uh, would resonate with our current experience. Um, uh, that's part of our our permanent collection. So, um, so yes, there'll be an exhibit of political campaign materials that um, are unexpected and kind of curious and fun. And then we are going to have more quilts. So um, the quilt exhibit that was up year round in the Diverse Voices Gallery had three versions because you cannot responsibly display quilts for more than you know three months because of gravity and how that impacts a textile. So um, because of COVID, we were unable to uh, mount the third uh, iteration of that exhibit um, during the summer. And so we have shifted that um, into the fall, also because our curator of folk life and field work, Sadler Taylor, is a reservist. And he was called up for military duty due to COVID. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, he, the exhibit he is curating uh, about South Carolina and North Carolina bladesmithing um, has been pushed to 2021. And we will have the third iteration of the quilt exhibit up through the end of the year, which from my point of view as a textile historian uh, makes total sense because um, one, of the, one of the connections I've been helping people make um, between the woman's right exhibit and the quilt exhibit when when they come to the museum is that in historical moments before you know women in the north america had the right to vote or had a voice publicly textiles and quilts in particular were often a means by which women crafted a public sphere within which they could make their feelings known about political candidates about who was going to be their minister in their town about um, any number of issues in their communities. Um, prohibition, uh, there are prohibition quilts, um, not one in our collection right now, but I know South, there's a, I was doing some research on South Carolina quilts and found that um, a prohibition quilt had actually um, been entered into the state fair and won a prize. So, um, so the quilt exhibit is in some ways, you know, a women's art exhibit showcasing the ways in which Women have been incredibly resourceful um, uh, historically uh, in terms of finding a way to make their opinions known and, and understood um, in the public sphere, even when they didn't have legal rights to, to make those opinions public. So, um, so those are the exhibits that people can expect and look forward to in the fall, whether they are coming in person or uh, are staying at home and uh, and viewing um, our exhibits online. And I guess I should also say that you know um, you know the museum experience uh, as we are still waiting for a vaccine will be different from what it has been in the past. Um, museums right now are going through a very um, uh, soul searching process because you know you want to invite people to come back to your museum to have an experience of your collection of the stories you're trying to lift up and shine a light on. Um, but we wanna do that in a way that's responsible and safe for both the museum staff and our audiences and the people who come. So, um, so I'm pretty darn sure that uh, like many other museums, we will have in place um, 
uh, and again, this is not finalized yet, um, but, uh, but I think there will be um, uh, an attempt to encourage people and enforce a kind of six foot social distancing uh, measure. Um, we will <coughs> um, offer and hope people will um, perhaps wear a face covering while they are there in the gallery to protect themselves and to protect others. Um, as just one more um, way that we can help ensure that everybody can have an in-person experience that is safe. Um, and it, it, strangely enough, um, you know, the strategies that museums are using to bring people back into the museum are, are in some ways more personal. Um, uh, I was part of a webinar yesterday where um, someone said, well, maybe, you know, if somebody's in the gallery and wants to talk to a curator, Maybe their phone number should just be on, you know, on the wall and they can just pick up the, you know, they can use their cell phones and, and just call somebody if they have a question. And I thought to myself, huh, I mean, I had never thought about that as a way of engaging the public during COVID, um, that if you can't or don't have the capacity to offer a sort of tour, guided tour experience because you're concerned about safety, um, that being able to just pick up the phone and everybody seems, well, something like 98% of people now have cell phones, it seems. And um, so encouraging or facilitating those kind of conversations might be possible. Um, of course, many museums are exploring um, web applications or apps that, um, that would enhance a touchless experience at the museum so that rather than, um, you know, uh, having hands-on um, options or touch screens that, that, um, that that visitors would um, be given the option of downloading an app or connecting via Wi-Fi to a web-based app that would offer the kind of in-depth interpretation that somebody giving a tour would, would, would ordinarily provide, but that would substitute for that. And some museums, because they're afraid that posting um, text on walls will uh, encourage people to cluster around the text to read it, they are taking all of their text and, and interpretive material off the walls and putting it on an app that people can access through their phones. I'm not sure we'll be going down that route because uh, I just, I don't know, I think, um, well, again, I have no idea. My staff and I are still meeting and talking and of course looking for guidance from the university about how um, we're going to reopen and have a safe in-person experience for staff and for visitors. So, um, so I should probably pause there, but, it, but museums are getting very creative, let me just put it that way, about how to welcome people back um, and welcome them back safely. And while you're waiting to welcome people back, you are doing a little bit of outreach in, in addition to people being able to find uh, exhibits information on the website. Uh, you've been doing uh, sort of more direct outreach through the Ask a Curator and your Quarantunes, which seems to be a weekly or almost uh, every other week, if, if not weekly, uh, Friday night concert. Can you tell us a little bit more about these uh, ways people could interact with the museum and if there's anything else like that that people should be looking for? Sure. Um, so when we uh, closed due to COVID, um, my first impulse was to uh, move exhibit content and try to find a way of adapting the programs we already had in place and planned for um, 
for an online presentation. So, um, so the first thing we did was um, we were hosting monthly quilt documentation days um, to continue a research project that had started in the 1980s um, by inviting people to come and bring quilts that they had in their families or that they had acquired at you know an auction or whatever, but to come have them documented so that we could um, have a better understanding and a deeper understanding of of that form of art in our in our state and region. So um, so the first in person one we had was was incredibly um, well attended and successful. So after we were closed, I said, well, let's just try to move this online. So with a lot of technical support from my communication staff, um, we moved the quilt documentation day online. Uh, so we still host it on Saturdays at 11 o'clock for the second Saturday of the month. Um, and it's been wonderful because we invited people to send me images of their quilts um, that they wanted to have documented. And, uh, and I've been using those images. Um, again, our communications manager, Amanda Ballou, found a way for me to share images as I'm talking about the quilts on uh, Facebook Live. And um, so we've had great fun um, talking about these quilts that people have come into um, in their families. In one case, I was particularly excited because a woman had 12 quilts made by her grandmother. And it's so unusual to have the ability to kind of document a body of work by one particular quilt maker, because usually they get dispersed and, um, and it's hard to reassemble them. And uh, so it was really exciting and fun. So you can, um, again, the past uh, quilt documentation days that we had have been um, recorded or on Facebook, um, our Facebook page, so you can go look at those. But I would invite people to continue uh, to join us on the second Saturday of the month at 11 o'clock. Um, we host a Facebook Live quilt documentation day program. And then um, uh, the quarantines. Okay, so um, this year, uh, you know, McKissick Museum um, historically for many decades has partnered with the South Carolina Arts Commission to host the arts um, awards that include the Jean Laney Harris Folk Heritage Awards and the Werner Awards. Um, and this year, because of COVID, um, we did not host an in-person uh, event like we normally would do the first week of May. So when I saw that you know, we weren't going to be able to do that. I thought, well, we still need to find a way to celebrate traditional artists and advocates um, in our state. And so uh, our new um, uh, Folk Life Program director um, or manager or coordinator, his, his title, um, uh, that title keeps changing. His name is Ian Halligan. He hails from uh, Austin, Texas. He moved here uh, the first week of March, and then we closed, right? So, but I, I said to Ian, I said, we can't have an in-person uh, event to showcase the talents of these Folk Heritage Award winners. Can we do something online? And he was the one who came up with this idea of doing a Friday night Quarantunes series of performances by um, people who have been recipients of the Jean Laney Harris Folk Heritage Award, but also um, other you know, traditional musicians who have not yet perhaps received that award, but who are part of the uh, traditional music community. So we contacted Bill, um, well, Willie Wells um, of Bill's Pick and Parlor because um, I knew they had a Friday night jam session regularly. And my guess was that they had closed that, but I, I didn't want to step on his toes if um, 
if they were still doing a live jam session. But Willie was just wonderful. And his band was the first one that we featured on Quarantunes, right? Because he had to cancel his, um, his lineup for Friday nights um, jam sessions because of COVID. So, um, and he put us in touch with the Bluegrass and Traditional Music Association of South Carolina. And so they have been a wonderful resource for musicians that we might feature as part of Quarantunes. And um, Ian's own interest in um, diverse forms of music, um, he, he reached out to, and we were able to feature um, Gino Castillo, uh, who lives in Charleston um, and, uh, and does uh, Latinx music, traditional music from Cuba and Puerto Rico. And, um, and it was just, it's been really exciting. Um, let me just put it that way, to see how the musicians we have invited to um, share what they do, um, the traditions they are rooted in, but also in many cases, um, many members of this community write new traditional music or new tunes that will become traditional music. So, um, so, so yeah, so tune in uh, seven o'clock PM Friday nights through June at least. So uh, Michael King, Piedmont Blues musician is our featured performer this Friday, but you can go back and look on our Facebook um, page for the recordings of the other musicians who've been featured since um, early May. Um, last but not least, uh, you know, my staff said, well, why don't we try a new Facebook Live program called Ask a Curator? And I was really sorry that today, the timing of today's um, talk uh, was right after our new curator of exhibitions, Giordano uh, Angeletti, um, did a Ask a Curator program um, live for McKissick Museum. So this has been a chance, you know, for people to, to actually um, ask questions, people who are curious about, you know, what does a curator do? You know, how do exhibits get planned? Who has the idea? You know, what is developing an exhibit entail? Um, people have a chance just to ask our curators, you know, about what they do, how they got to do what they do. Because some people, um, I mean, the route to becoming a curator is is not always a straight line. And I think people um, are fascinated to, to learn about that. So that was, like I said, a, a new experiment with um, Ask a Curator to see whether, um, again, we could offer um, an opportunity for people who are interested to engage with our staff in different ways. So all of these Facebook Live uh, events that you've hosted thus far are available for you to watch after the fact still. So if people missed, say, today's Ask a Curator, they can catch that uh, online later. Is that right? Yes, they can. Yep. Fantastic. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share about how people can engage with the museum uh, while we're still waiting for guidance on how to reopen to the public? It seems like there's a lot going on and it's been really exciting to hear about the history of the museum and how people can still interact with the museum. I just wanted to see if there's anything else you think people should know. Well, if there are things that we could do um, to be relevant to what people in our community on and off campus are wrestling with, we would love to hear about it. Because of course, you know, we, um, as a staff, we think, you know, uh, we, we've tried to um, continue uh, the kinds of exhibits and programs that people have come to expect at McKissick Museum. Um, but given the extraordinary circumstances in which we find ourselves, 
If there are um, programs or um, services that, um, that people who understand a little bit about who McKissick is and what we've done that we could um, support, you know, we're all ears at this point. Um, and actually, I think next week as part of our newsletter, we're going to send out a brief in a survey monkey just asking people, you know, um, our, does our online catalog work for you? You know, I mean, is, is this a direction that, um, I mean, it's something that we have been able to do um, and we have committed to doing uh, because it's a way to continue to share, um, you know, the, uh, the research, the objects um, that we steward um, with people. But um, if there's something that we're not doing that people would like to see us start doing, um, given the constraints in which we're all living, um, we would just love to know that. How do people reach out to you? You know, I think there's a generic um, email on our website that you can write to. So if people want to share an idea they have about how McKissick Museum can be relevant to their lives, I would love to hear from them. Thank you so much, Jane, for joining us on the Coger Center Arts Roundup. We appreciate your time and learning a little bit more about not only the history of the museum, but how people can stay engaged, particularly while they're perhaps still sheltering at home. Our guest today has been Jane Prisby, Executive Director of the McKissick Museum. Uh, McKissick is located right here on the University of South Carolina campus, in the heart of the campus on the Horseshoe. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The Coker Center Arts Roundup is produced in part by Garnet Media Group, the student media partnership at the University of South Carolina. Information about tickets and upcoming events can be found at CogerCenterForTheArts.com, the official website for Coger Center tickets. For more information about Garnet Media Group, visit garnetmedia.org.